May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Whatever else he should be remembered for, healing the sick, walking on water, the cross itself, Jesus was a notorious meddler. He just was never shy about getting into people's business and letting them know exactly what he thought they should be doing with their lives or their time or their money or their bodies. It's surprising then that he seems to have been so popular with people who had something to celebrate. Throughout the gospel, we hear Jesus being invited to weddings and feasts and parties, even though almost without exception, he turns up and then starts speaking uncomfortable truth to the guests and hosts alike. So this morning we hear from Luke 14 that Jesus has been invited to dine on the Sabbath at the home of a Pharisee, which is a bit like inviting the fox into the hen house. Jesus loves to pick on the Pharisees. They're like his favorite debate partner, And we tend to think of them as being so focused on the law to the exclusion of anything else. But the Pharisees were also the people who knew Scripture best. And it seems that if Jesus spars with them frequently, it's probably because they cared about the stuff that he cared about. The nature of God's love and the duty of God's people. They were so close to the kingdom, but often so far away. But Jesus was not afraid to dine with Pharisees despite their differences, and apparently they must not have minded having him around either. So in our reading this morning, we pick up the action midstream. Jesus is already seated at the table. And just after asking the group if it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not, and telling them that everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And as if that wasn't enough for one night, Jesus turns to the host of the meal with another little nugget of wisdom. He tells him not to invite only his friends and his close family or his richest neighbors to come and share his table when he hosts a meal, but to invite the poor, the crippled, and the blind. These are those that we might cleverly title the last, the least, and the lost. And in first century Palestine and around the Roman Empire, this would have been the equivalent of advising that the host commit an act of dramatic public social self-destruction. Everyone, from the Roman emperor to the lowest, youngest child in the poorest family, was bound by a system of reciprocal hospitality. Having the right people at your house for the right party was the way that people climbed the ladder of social advancement in the eyes of their peers, and if possible, upgraded the quality of those peers in the process. So no one, if they had any sense, would invite the poor or the sick or outcasts to a meal in their home if they could have afforded to have better guests, because these invitations were a valuable tool for advancement. There was no concept of accepting an invitation as a genuinely kind offer with no strings attached. The whole system was based on the idea that if you would scratch my back, 
I will scratch yours. And this kind of calculating reciprocity kept the poor down and the rich on top by design. It's impossible to move up in the world if you could not afford to offer someone comparable hospitality after accepting their invitation so that no one could ever risk the shame associated with failing to match the hospitality offered by your host. The whole experience came with strings attached and expectations preloaded, and there was tremendous pressure that could not just be ignored. So after Jesus drops this bombshell at the table, someone seated next to him decides to chime in. This seems like a good idea. You've been in social situations like this when there's that awkward pause and somebody has to move the conversation forward. And whoever this unnamed character is, it seems like he's trying to score some points with Jesus. So he leans over and he says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Well, sure. That, y- yes, that's, that's right. But this is a milquetoast Sunday school interjection. And Jesus, of course, never misses an opportunity to press the point home a little harder. So he leans in with this parable. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. This feast involves multiple days of preparation. That's why the invitation doesn't say, turn up at 6.30, we'll be ready for you, because there's a lot of work that has to be done. But all of the guests alike began to make excuses. The first said, I bought a field, I have to go out and see it. Please have me excused. And the second said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, I have to go and examine them, please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Husbands and wives, this is a system that you may have employed yourself. (laughs) So the servant came and reported to the master, and the master of the house became angry, and he says to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, what you commanded has been done, and there is still room. And so the master sends him out again to the highways and the hedges, compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Now, we know that's not how things usually worked. And Jesus' audience would have been shocked by this parable. To have one guest decline your invitation at such a late date would have been frustrating. But to have all of them find some excuse to skip the occasion would have been a catastrophe. The social shame the host would have felt would have escalated as the rejections piled up. He's not just slipping down the social ladder. He's been pushed off by his supposed friends. But rather than quietly accepting his sudden fall from grace, the host instead resolves to find anyone available to come and enjoy his feast, inviting strangers and outcasts and the sick into his home. He takes the expectations of the social world in which he lives and flips them upside down. The scorned man instead chooses to opt out of the old system altogether. He creates a whole new space where even those that the world sees as disreputable and unworthy are welcome to come in. This parable, as Jesus tells it, imagines the creation of a whole new social order centered on abundant generosity, 
Lives that have wrongly been focused on possessions and family relationships and status will have to be reordered. Now, this perspective is completely at odds with the world in which the parable was first told, and it remains just as countercultural in our own times. We never invite strangers into our homes. And when we meet them elsewhere, we tend to keep them at arm's length. The church is, of course, the new community that Jesus has in mind. The space in which the social pressure of the world is dissolved. And there are no strangers, no insiders or outsiders. The church is sent by God into the world to be a community composed of members of every race, tribe, nation, class, and party, operating by new rules grounded in gracious and uncalculating hospitality. The ways of the world are meant to be left behind at our baptism because they cannot hope to match the strength of the love and the connection that followers of Christ share with one another. That's why Christian worship, when done well, is so wildly out of step with everything else that we do during a given week. If we seek to love and serve Christ first and foremost, that will mean being intentionally out of step with every other part of the world around us. And if we see our neighbors as tools to be used to secure our own status, we are following a false gospel. Jesus challenges us to see the idols in our lives and cast them out in favor of following our Lord who ate with sinners and was crucified even for those who hated him. That's why you'll frequently hear me reminding folks that this table is the table of our Lord and that all baptized Christians are welcome to come and eat here. Jesus calls the church to go beyond the world's comfortable social rules and invites us all to repent and come in to share the goodness of God that none of us have earned. And this takes lots and lots of practice. Because, of course, if this is the only place that you're reminded that God loves you and desires to share in a relationship with you, it might be hard for you to believe. In my family, hospitality is one way we practice the art of following Jesus. I am, as you might remember, the oldest son of three boys, which meant that meals in our home were always kind of a production anyway. Pity my poor mother, who at one point had two sons in high school and a third just about to hit his own growth spurt, although I know some of you are eagerly looking forward to your own experience, similarly, in just a few years. Just punch bowls of cereal, morning, noon, and night. But it, it was always important for us to eat together. Now, that's hard during the week, obviously in the mornings, because everybody has a different schedule. Although occasionally my father would appear in a bathrobe just to frighten me, just to know that he might be up in the morning unless I was careful. <laughs> and lunch was obviously happening in all kinds of different places. But dinner was the meal that brought us together usually and frequently involved more than just the immediate family, which meant that Believe it or not, in my house, it was not uncommon to eat dinner at 9 o'clock on a weeknight because we were stubborn, stubborn people. <laughs> so my uncle who lived nearby would come in, a friend from church or school would happen to just drop by, and sometimes there would be visitors from out of town who just decided to stick around and eat with us even as the hour grew increasingly late. 
And it never seemed like it was an inconvenience, even if as kids it was a little bit annoying to have to move chairs around to get everybody around one table. And then we had to mind our manners and put our napkins in our laps and not talk over each other, which is something that we did anyway. It was often heard from one end of the table, boys, if you don't stop it, we're going to have to have a conversation outside. And that was how you knew it was time to really, really focus. Not everybody who came to the table was ready to hear a three-part comedy bit that we'd been rehearsing for about 15 years. <laughs> but it was a remarkably unselfconscious thing. My parents never sat us down and said, this is why we have people over for dinner, because of what Christ has done for us. And they never explained why they were so willing to feed people, even at great expense and with little planning. But later, as I started to get into my actual theological studies, I began to understand that my family was practicing a kind of hospitality that was uniquely informed by their Christian convictions. Now, I'm not trying to argue that it's impossible to invite people over for a meal if you're not a disciple of Jesus, but rather that there is a uniquely Christian approach to table hospitality and fellowship, and somehow I had been a part of that my whole life without ever having to think about it very hard. The hospitality that we practice in our homes, no matter how simple it might be, is an echo of the hospitality that is extended to us by God in Christ. And we have a sacred duty to welcome others into our homes and to our tables because Christ commends it and we're seeking to follow his example. That generosity flows from a proper understanding of what God has done for us, of God's expansive and almost lavish mercy. At this table, where Christ is both host and meal, we are being fed so that we can be sent out into the world as agents of his mission. That's why we repeat the Eucharist every single Sunday. Not because we think it's wearing out, but because we need it to sustain us. When we understand the Eucharist rightly, when we eat and drink to our own sanctification, we recognize that while this is a meal of fellowship for all believers, and it is also a reminder of what Christ has done on our behalf, it is indeed a moment of commissioning. When we take in the body and the blood of our Savior, as well as the spirit of his mission, all for the sake of being sent out into the world, where it will actually help us to have been nourished by Christ. We need to eat together with him in order that we can live in the world together with him. And we need to feast with those last, least, and lost as a reminder that all of us are sustained by grace alone and that our lives and our salvation is linked with theirs. If we are only able to fellowship with those that we know and love, those who are happy to repay our generosity with gifts of their own, we are no better than the Pharisees or any other garden variety sinner that we might think of. Who will sit and eat bread in the kingdom? Those who are willing to embrace the new world that the kingdom describes. This is the dramatic reversal that Christ sent the church to proclaim, that all are invited to the feast of God. 
So now, to follow Jesus' example, I want to do a little bit of meddling myself. Are we able to do what God calls us to do? Is there room in the church, which has been sent by Christ to welcome others without any hope that they will be able to return our hospitality? Can we do this? Our welcome for others has to seek to match the standard that Christ's sacrificial offering has set for us. And that starts with the most simple of invitations. The table is a place where we are fed and where we fellowship just as much where we live as where we worship. The tables in our homes are an extension of Christ's table. They are sites where we can participate in his mission to bring all people into a loving relationship with himself. So if you want to be on mission with Jesus in your everyday life, the easiest way is to share a meal with others in your home or in theirs. Now, taking that first step is hard. Many of us don't know non-Christians. Many of us don't know our neighbors. But Christians should be people, like in Scripture, who throw excellent, extravagant dinner parties and invite our friends and neighbors and those we know less well those we think God is calling us to open our homes to. You don't have to be the barefoot Contessa. You don't have to be Bobby Flay to have others come and eat in your house. You don't have to be a theologian. If there is laundry on the table that has to be folded, those folks can fold your laundry. If there are children who are being noisy or you overcook the spaghetti, that's all right. The most important thing is that as Christians, we have to see our homes, not just our churches, but our actual homes, as a place where even the least of us can welcome others and share the warmth and the love that we have discovered in Jesus Christ. So here is your charge for the morning. Get out your good china or your paper plates, your plastic sporks or grandma's silverware, the crystal stemware or red solo cups or anywhere in between, and invite other people into your house and then talk to them. If you cannot host them in your home, find some other place you can gather together. There are wonderful parks all around us. Find some way to interact with the people that God places in your path in a non-threatening, non-aggressive, open manner. Just eat with people. It's a good thing. We do it every Sunday, Not just because it's convenient and the coffee is really good, but because we enjoy being together. And I bet you know somebody, not your priest, I'm fine. Don't don't invite me. (laughs) This is not a a quiet invitation to invite me to dinner. Uh, You know somebody in your life who would love to be invited to come to your home and share a meal. Not just those that you know and love, but people who would love to be invited into the hospitality around your table. We talk often about practical ways to follow Jesus. This is perhaps the most practical one possible. And when we do this, we become co-conspirators with Jesus Christ in the overthrow of the disordered and sinful world around us. And we taste the bread of the coming kingdom of God and we share it with others. And that is the greatest blessing. Amen.